0: Is someone you love facing jail or prison because of their drinking or addiction? How do you live through something like that? Welcome to episode 287 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Tamson, Penelope, Matthew, Ronald, and Charlotte. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Tamson, Penelope, Matthew, Ronald, and Charlotte for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery.
1: Before we begin, we'd like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you'll find something in our sharing that speaks to
0: your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host today. Joining me is Michelle, welcome, and Mark. And welcome to both of you. Mark, you had um, a quote that you thought we might open with.
2: It's from our uh, Naranon Daily Reader, which um, is entitled, Sharing, Experience, Strength, and Hope. We call it the SESH book to abbreviate that. Like I said, it's a daily reader with inspirational readings. It's much like the Naranon version of Courage to Change.
1: Which we also read.
2: <laughs> yeah, which we also read, yes. Each reading ha- usually ends with a quotation from from someone, and I often find the quotations more memorable and easier to digest and more slogan-like than some of the readings. One that's always stuck with me and is one of the reasons that we like to share our story whenever we can is sort of encapsulated in this quote from Rick Warren, the very experiences that you have resented or regretted most in life, the ones that you wanted to hide and forget are the experiences that God wants you to use to help others.
0: Mm, Thank you for that. And, and thank you for, for coming on the show. You know, Michelle and I spoke some time ago, I, I went and looked it up because I couldn't remember exactly when it was. It was January 2014, so five years ago. It was episode 58, and Michelle, shared you shared your experience uh, living with relapse. And then recently, you called to offer your experience, strength, and hope on this topic of you know, having a loved one who is incarcerated as a result of their uh, drug or alcohol use. So why don't we start maybe with a little bit of your journey and where you are now.
2: Yeah, it's been a it's been a long trip. Uh, I think Michelle started going to Naranon around 2011, and because she's smarter than I am, she's she's <laughs> she started earlier and and engaged more thoroughly at an early phase. I admittedly, back in that time frame, was very much in denial about my son's drug and alcohol use, like a lot of people. I think I wrote it off as normal adolescent experimentation, I really had this kind of false belief that if we just, he was finishing up high school at the time. And I had this false belief that if we just somehow got him into college and got him off to college, everything would be okay. And of course, when he entered college in the fall of 2011, it ended up being, a total disaster. Within a semester, he was on both academic and disciplinary probation. And in March of his freshman year, we got I got a call at work but from the administration at his college and said, you have 48 hours to come collect your son and get him and his belongings off campus. Otherwise, he will be charged with trespassing. So that really brought it all home for me. In terms of step one, I learned I didn't have control over the addict and that my life had become unmanageable. And that's when I started to engage more completely with our support group at, of Naranon. And it's been a real lifesaver for both of us. It saved our sanity. I'm sure it's probably saved our marriage and our relationships with other people and family members. And just learning how to deal with what's going on. Since that time when Ian was uh, jettisoned from college, uh, we did all the things that parents do in those situations. We pulled out all the stops trying to save him. We brought him home. We got him under the care of... Multiple counselors and psychiatrists. We tried everything. We got him on suboxone therapy. We had him seeing, having multiple appointments every week. And in spite of all those efforts, he still kept using drugs under our roof. And we had a, we have another son who at the time was 11 years old, and we couldn't have him be exposed to that kind of issue and that kind of danger. And so in May of 2012, I had to ask Ian to leave our home. After that, it was one long spiral for him of in and out of rehab, um, couch surfing on friends' couches until he wore out his welcome with them he went to rehab a couple of times in north carolina multiple times down in florida and just to fast forward he eventually after being in and out of rehabs in florida and in and out of sober houses in florida he ran off to california where he had been he's been ever since probably 2013 we sporadically heard from him when he was out there in California, but his living situation was always very unstable. He was always either losing his phone or having his phone stolen or maybe pawning his phone for drug money. He and people he lived with moved around from place to place. So it was, we really never could reach him. He had to always find a way to reach out to us. And, you know, the long story short of it was there was a period there where we didn't see him in the flesh for five years. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, that made some parts of what we've been through easier because he was so far away, you know, because we couldn't really drop everything and run out there to try to rescue him. In some ways, it forced us to be more disciplined about how we thought about things, how we processed and reacted to things, and it gave us a chance to really learn the lessons that Naranon was trying to teach us. You know, and it's, it's been okay. The big change and the reason we're talking to you on this topic today is, I mean, he had had petty run-ins with the law going back to when he was still living here in North Carolina. I mean, he'd some, spent some weekends in jail for petty charges and things like that.
1: And because of our program, we set a boundary with him fairly early on in, in this process that we would not bail him out of jail. And that was safe for us to do because we knew so many people who had been through this experience and had gotten a lot of feedback that not only does that enable them to get out and completely you know go back to the lifestyle that they were pursuing, but also we knew people that had just about bankrupted themselves trying to make sure their children never racked up any felony charges. And not only did it not stop the behavior, but they had been later on, just out of necessity, had to use the public defender for economic reasons and gotten as good or better deals out of the public defender than they ever did from the criminal attorney that they had retained. So that was a place where a program helped us set that boundary with him early, and he knew that we shouldn't be the first phone call.
2: Right. And that was some of the early lessons we learned going back to our first year or so in Naranon was, you know, you walk into the room and, and parents are there and they're sharing their story about, oh yeah, my son's in jail. And as a parent who has not experienced that yet, you kind of go, Oh, good grief. I have that to look forward to. That <laughs> must that that must be horrible. But by sharing their story, our friends in Naranon said, you know what? It's not the worst thing in the world. He's safe. I know where he is. He's got a roof over his head, and that's not always been true. He's got three square meals a day, and that hasn't always been true. He's probably no longer drinking and using drugs, even though we all know if you really want to get those things in prison, you probably can. Our friend said, you know, I know where he is. I sleep better now when he's in jail then when I don't know where he is, or I think he's out on the streets or doing whatever he was doing on the outside. And then like Michelle said, by having parents say, you know, he got arrested through his own actions. I'm not going to run out, run down to the courthouse and bail him out. He's going to have to learn that if he gets into a jam like that through his own actions, that there's consequences for those actions. And, I don't have an obligation to soften the blow to make it easier for him to get out and start using again. That doesn't make me a bad parent to think that way. And those lessons from hearing them from our friends in Naranon, those lessons were really important because they told us, you know, this is not the worst thing that can happen. You can survive it. And here are some strategies for dealing with it without losing your mind or blowing all your money on lawyers and other things that ultimately often end up being counterproductive and just extend the kind of cycle of enabling. Um, So those early lessons for us were really important. And they sort of got us ready for when eventually our son did have run-ins with the law. And like I said, he had some petty run-ins when he was still here in our state. He, He knew not to call us we often didn't find out he'd spent a weekend in jail until after he was back out of jail. He didn't bother. uh, And that was fine. And he was totally, I think, accepting of that. That gave us some feedback that maybe we were doing things the right way.
0: You spoke about when he was out in California that you couldn't just jump in and that helped you with, I guess, setting appropriate boundaries and so on. Did it, make it easier, harder, or both emotionally?
1: I would say, I would say both. You know, one thing that I have seen in some of my fellows in program is that the closer your child is, the closer you are to chaos while he's in active addiction. So if he's under your roof, you can barely hear yourself think. If he's in an apartment two miles away You know, I remember going to the grocery store because one of the phases of all of this was that we put him in an apartment for a while and, you know, told him he needed to get a job and all that sort of thing. And we were going to help him with the rent until he did. And that ended up being a huge fiasco, which is probably enough for another another podcast at another (laughs) time. But anyway, you know, it's like a friend of ours in program says, put that on your list as another thing that didn't work in trying to control your addicts using and behavior. I remember I'd go to the grocery store knowing that he was a couple miles away and I would see that his favorite ice cream was on sale and I would buy three gallons of his favorite ice cream and go over and give it to him. And that would mean I had to see who else he had let it live in the apartment, how he was taking care of it, which he wasn't, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it was really hard for me to cut that, I'll go ahead and use the word cord to him when he was close enough for me to just run over there and check in. And the fact that he was so far away took that option away. By the same token, there were times it did feel, there was a panicky feeling that if something really dire did happen, we couldn't get to him quickly. So, yeah, I would say both. Yeah.
2: But by the same token, part of this journey has been learning what my proper place is in all of this. If something dire had happened to him and i and and we had this experience when he was living near us in the apartment Michelle was just talking about he was had a friend with him, and i'm I'm pretty sure they were probably doing drugs together and His friend called me up one morning and said uh, uh, ian's Ian's having a seizure uh what should I do and the implication at least to me was that I was supposed to do something about that, that I was supposed to drop everything that was going on in my life and run over there and intervene in some way. Yeah. I thought to myself, look, I'm not an EMT. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a drug counselor. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not Superman I don't have a canister of Narcan on me.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I told I, so I told this kid, I said, you know, you need to call 911. If he's having a seizure, if he's overdosing, whatever's going on, that's what needs to be done. I, I, I'm useless in this situation. All I would do is come over there and be a stressed out basket case. <laughs> that's not going to be good. That's not going to be good for him, it's not gonna be good for you, it's not gonna be good for me, it's not gonna be good for anyone. So what would you do if it were a stranger and they were having a seizure? We would call nine one one. So I said, call nine one one and get him to the hospital. And that was the end of the phone call. I did not intervene. I didn't even follow up to figure out if this was a genuine call or not. For all I know it was they were Making up a story to get my attention or something. That's how detached with love I was, and try to still remain in that moment of crisis. And that's all
0: because of Naranon. The lessons we've learned at Naranon. Yeah, you could have done that same thing if he was in California.
2: Well, exactly. I mean, it's it's more expensive. It takes more time. But yeah, you know, you get a phone call, and we've seen people do this you know you can go buy a plane ticket rush to the airport abandon the rest of your family abandon your job responsibilities and your responsibilities around the house to run off to california or hawaii or wherever your addicted loved one may be and all that's going to do is make you crazy it's going to make you crazy and it doesn't necessarily end up helping the addict either um and that's the longest. That's the long and short of it. And and that's the hard lesson that you've got to learn. That they're only going to get better when they want to get better. They're only gonna. The only person that's going to be able to save them is when they get the inkling and the and the sense of responsibility to themselves to save themselves. And until that happens, you can do whatever you want. Try to move heaven and earth drive yourself crazy with worry and anxiety, it will not make any difference in my experience. Mm
1: -hmm. And at the same time, I think, you know, for example, just the incident that he just mentioned, we never heard another word about it. There was never a hospital bill and he was still on our insurance. So, you know, likely that was a cry for attention.
0: Because if there had been an an ambulance, then you would have seen something, right?
1: Sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And we did, we had other experiences like that too.
2: Well, and interestingly, because we responded that way, another incident like that either didn't happen or we were never informed of it. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. I remember getting an ambulance bill for my kid when they were in college in Arizona. Out of the blue, here's this this bill in the mail for for an ambulance, and called him up, said, "What's this about?" And of course, the 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 first response was, "Oh." I'd hope you wouldn't find out about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. uh, uh-huh. And I said, you need to call the insurance and tell them uh, to pay it.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's the sort of thing. I I also think that there's a difference between responding when you really need to and sort of knee jerk responses. So I, I always tell my sponsees that there's something called the Naranon pause, which is an awful lot like the al pause. Yeah in which you don't just do the first thing that comes into your head. And one thing we like to say in our group is don't just do something, stand there.
0: Yeah, we say the same.
1: Yeah, so so basically any time that your addict is doing something or has had an event that sounds like you need to grab the car keys, just think for a minute. And also understand that if you go every time they summon you in that way, not only are you setting up a boy who cried wolf situation, but you're also giving the addict the message that they can't get themselves out of whatever situation they've gotten themselves into. And that's a subtle kind of enabling in which you're basically cutting someone off at the knees saying, life is too hard for you. You can't handle it yourself. It's no wonder you have to take drugs to get through the world because apparently you just can't handle anything and you're always going to need me to handle it for you. And when you're giving someone that message, that's the opposite of empowering them for recovery, in my opinion.
0: No kidding. So where where are you now? What's going on today?
2: We've already talked about a lot of things and we haven't even gotten to his, his, is today. his, his arrest yet. In May of 2017, I think a lot of people have had this experience. I think I was at work and I got one of those automated calls where a robotic voice says something along the lines of, an inmate in the California Department of Corrections has tried to contact you. And so I was like, okay, well, this probably means he's had another run in with the law and goodness knows what it is. But I didn't leap into panic, luckily, because you know I've been practicing. We what- burned
1: those circuits out. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's just it. I. I. I don't know. I don't know if I have internalized all the nara about detaching with love, or if I'm just burned out. But. <laughs> but the end result may be the same. We said, well, we don't know what this is. It could be anything. We'll wait until we get more information before we try to respond in any sort of way. And after a day or two went by, I said, well, you know, we hadn't heard anything. So I just, on a lark, I think I did a Google search looking for his name and combined it with the word arrest or something like oh, that. Well there's
1: no way you can get back in touch with the person. It's all one way. They have to call you. So you can't call them. They won't tell you your kids. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, right.
2: You can't call you can't call the jail. We didn't even know what jail to call if we wanted to, much less how it how how they might have received such a call. So there was really nothing we could do. But I did a quick Google search and lo and behold a news story from a newspaper comes up with his name in it. And describes what he did. He evidently, one afternoon, walked into someone's house. I guess the door was unlocked. Two older ladies lived in the house, a lady and her mother. And Ian evidently waved a gun around, frightened them, and took their car keys and took their car. Hmm. Luckily, neither one of them were hurt. Neither one of them had a heart attack or anything like that. Evidently, three or four hours later, he was only 10 miles away. He wrecked their car. And luckily, no one got hurt in that incident either, but he got arrested by the California Highway Patrol. They found out that he matched the description of this, of this, you know, crime. And so he went, went to, went to jail. I can't remember Michelle how long it was before we actually heard from him directly, but it was what was interesting and you know part of this journey is some things that you think in the moment are terrible that are disasters actually end up being positive things in a way and I described earlier how about some of our friends in Narnan had described that. When their kid was in jail, that's when they slept the best because they knew they were safe and had a roof over their heads. When we first talked to Ian the first few months he was in jail, he had the same kind of attitude that he had had for a long time. They declared him incompetent to stand trial at first and transferred him to another facility. His statements to us were, you know, they're all out to get me. I don't remember my crime. So the police report, for all I know, could all be made up. The attorney they appointed for me is incompetent. They're not helping me. It's all someone else's fault. I'm not dealing with this. They're railroading me. All this sort of stuff. Kind of anyone's responsibility but my own. And they were going to hold him as incompetent to stand trial until he agreed to you know, be declared competent. And the reason they declared him incompetent was because he could not remember the day of the crime. He was probably high at the moment that he did all these but things.
1: His drug of choice was meth, and we think he was really paranoid and thought he was being pursued by someone. That's kind of what we've been able to piece together. He needed a car to get away.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Because he could not remember the crime, he could not participate in his own defense, so that makes him incompetent for trial. And that kind of Attitude from him went on for quite a few weeks, if not months. He's like, you know, they're all out to get me. They're all lying. After a few months, there was an attitude change. And I don't know if this was a function of not being able to get access to drugs and alcohol, if it was an aspect of getting a little bit older and maybe his head clearing out and becoming maybe a little more mature. But after a while he said, you know what? I'm I'm tired of this. I I'm gonna go ahead and talk to the counselors about getting declared competent to stand trial. I'll probably accept a plea deal. I know that even if I don't remember what I did this time, I know I've done plenty of things in the past that I deserve to go to jail for that I never got caught for. So I'm just gonna take a plea deal and get my final prison assignment where I can get on with my life. Maybe I can get some kind of training or some sort of assistance when I get my final prison assignment, but until that happens, everything's on hold for me. I just want to get on with things. When we heard that, that was a real a real signal of hope for us. You learn not to get your hopes up too much, but when you hear a big attitude change like that from it's everyone else's fault but mine, and the cops are lying, and the district attorney's lying to, you know what? Let's get this over with. I'm responsible for this. Let's move on. That's a big change. And that would not have happened if he had not been arrested and thrown into jail.
0: Yeah, probably not.
2: So, you know, one of my little slogans I've invented for myself is, You learn how to be thankful for things that you never thought you would be thankful for. I'm convinced that my son being arrested saved his life. Whether he turns his life around now or not, it saved his life because he was spiraling down on his own and there was nothing we could do to help him. And he's had a chance to dry out. He's had a chance to reflect upon things. He's learned lessons in prison from other prisoners where, some of the older prisoners have basically taken him under their wing and said, "Look, you're young, you've got your whole life ahead of you. Don't screw up your life like I have and be stuck in prison when you're 60 years old or 65 years old. You know, don't don't make the same mistakes I did." And in prison, he gets medical care. He's got some health issues related to his drug use and life choices he made while under the influence of drugs and things like that. He gets medication that he needs. He gets medical care that he needs.
1: He's wearing glasses for the first time. He's always needed them, and now he finally wears them. He wouldn't wear glasses or contact lenses for years.
2: And frankly, when he was, like I said earlier, when he was out on his own in California, we would only hear from him very sporadically. We hear from him now that he's been in jail much more regularly, you know, practically get a phone call from him every week. We have nice conversations. And at times he sounds very much like his old self. You can tell that his intelligence is still there. His sense of humor is still there. All the personality qualities that we loved in him when he was a child and a young teenager, Those things are all still there.
1: And he writes really wonderful, funny letters.
2: Yeah. And we weren't hearing any of that when he was on the outside under his own care and supervision, shall we say. We've been able to sort of reestablish some rapport with him. And because we knew where he was last summer, we went out there as a family and saw him in the flesh for the first time in five years, visited him in prison. We had as good a visit as you possibly could under the particular circumstances.
1: I think we ended up spending, what, like about five hours there?
2: Yeah, we were there about five and a half hours that we got to visit him.
1: Well, you know, it's funny because when I first started kind of researching what that was supposed to look like and what the policies were and stuff, and that was a hard thing to piece together from what I could understand, I was like, good Lord, you know, it looks like they're going to let us stay there as long as we want to. And I I don't know I don't know if I have a five-hour visit in me after all this time. And we really did. And he, it's funny because I talked to him and he said, boy, I was wondering last night what in the world we would talk about. And, you know, we just had a great time. They let you buy snacks from the, you know, vending machines and stuff. And so we just sat and, you know, ate lots of snacks and talked and just... Had a great time. His brother went with us, and it was the first time, of course, they had seen each other in all those years. And uh, you know, his brother's gone from being an eleven-year-old boy to being a man. Yeah, that son is eighteen now, so that was that was quite an eye-opener for him.
3: <laughs>
1: so it's uh, you know it that that was a really positive thing, and I did not expect for it to be, but it really was. the The staff was very kind. You know, there are some, some strange rules that, for example, your, your, um, your loved one can't touch money. They're not allowed to touch money. So you can't have them put the money in the vending machine. Can't hug them for very long. I guess that's centered around passing can, you know, contraband. So mm. if you hug someone and hold them for too long, an officer will respectfully ask you to stop hugging them. But they had a really nice area where prisoners had painted painted murals and things like that and partially it was outside and there were all sorts of families with children and things visiting and that was nice to see you know it was a hopeful it was a hopeful sight and it was really a positive experience
0: not the experience you might expect from what you see in TV huh
1: well no and it's not it wasn't apparently the only time that you have those kinds of non-contact visits are when you're I think I think when you're When your loved one is classified as like a level four, perhaps they would, but those are the plexiglass ones. You know, in in prison, they make it seem like if somebody gets arrested for shoplifting a package of gum, they go behind the plexiglass, but it's not like that at all. It's called a full contact visit, and you sit down together at generally a little table that you can share and just visit. So that was nice, and that was a nice surprise. There was a big learning curve, and I kind of tended to manage this end of things for us because it's more of a mom thing. But there was a big learning curve with logistics, like setting up an account that replenishes for him to have phone time. Only one, I think only one phone number can be assigned, so he's assigned to my phone. I think the calls are limited to 20 minutes, and you start to get a message that the the call is going to be ending usually them accessing a phone. There aren't that many phones there, so they have to wait for a turn on a pay phone. I imagine some negotiation goes on around that. I I choose to not look too closely at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, we keep phone time on there for him. And as Mark said, he calls us about once a week. I'm fairly familiar with his, his work schedule. He does have a job. He works in the laundry and so generally, he tries to catch up with me on Fridays, but he might call just about any time. One frustrating thing about about the phone call situation is when a prisoner calls you, you have to take that call then or that's kind of it. You know, if for some reason – and there's like a kind of a triage of things you have to go through. You have to hit certain numbers on your phone and stuff like that. And by the time you've done all that, you cannot possibly do that safely, for example, in a moving vehicle. So if he calls me and I'm driving, there's no way in the world, even hands-free, to answer that phone. Because hands-free, you can't do the button pushes you would need to do mm. or the touchscreen touches you would have to do. So that's been a little frustrating. You never know when that call is going to come. And you, you know, you, it's just another, it's another incidence of acceptance. You just have to accept that you missed that call that time. And hopefully he'll get a chance to get back in touch with you soon. So that was, that was a learning curve. You're allowed to send books and magazines, but you have to send them through a vendor. For example, I mean, our preferred one is Amazon, not to give anybody a plug, but it's easy to do. And I usually send him gently used books, and they can come from outside vendors like Goodwill or something as long as they go through Amazon. Hmm. You cannot go to the bookstore and buy a book and send it to him.
2: Yeah, I think, again, it's to make sure you're not smuggling smuggling something in through dockering a book or something.
0: I was just wondering, um, do they have like a limit on what kind of books because we have a a program at our church that collects books to deliver to the the local prisons, and they have some categories of books that we're not allowed to contribute.
1: You know the first facility he was in was a large county jail, and they did. It has not seemed such since then. I think okay. it really depends on the facility. It's at their discretion. I had had books rejected at that point and not always. I didn't always completely understand why. Um, I know I tried to send him um, Game of Thrones, and when I called the mailroom room to check on it, and I have to say the staff has been so kind. If you call them with a question, you know, when you get through to somebody, they're just so nice. And I did not expect that either. They said, well, you know, that, that particular series, we to get them riled up. So you know, <laughs> yeah. case by case thing, I think. Right.
2: Well, and the thing and the thing too, if you go on the California Department of Corrections website, they have a list of regulations regarding what you can send in terms of letters and books and things like that. And they they say lots of things are forbidden. Anything that has, you know, violent content or sexual content or really or has drug themes and themes of drug and alcohol abuse, those things are often dissuaded. Mm-hmm. And they have some weird things on letters too. Like they don't want anyone to get letters that are saturated with perfume or have lipstick on them. No glitter. And, and glitter is a big thing. They don't want glitter for I guess again and could be smuggled in on that And stuff. the
1: weirdest thing is stick on labels. Stick on labels. Like if somebody, like oh, there have been yeah. times our Sunday school class wanted to send them greeting cards and stuff in the first round that we did that, a bunch of people got theirs back because they had put those return address labels on there. Oh, And those aren't allowed and we didn't know that. You know, because they're the same adhesive and everything that stamps are. So it didn't really occur to anybody that we wouldn't be able to use those, but you can't. So, huh. so that was kind of a learning curve. And then they have um, they have commissary, but commissary doesn't tend to have a very broad range of goods. There's been a whole world that we've learned about in terms of there are these things you can send called quarterly packages, which are a whole world into themselves. You can only send them once a quarter, as the name would imply. Uh, there's a weight limit of 30 pounds, which sounds like a lot, but once you're doing stuff like sending a pound or two of coffee, uh-huh. it adds up pretty fast. Prior to starting the quarterly system, we were giving him thirty dollars on commissary about every two weeks. What we've done is converted that to a quarterly, and he never he, his requests never exceed that amount to the penny. That's what we said we were willing to do, and he's been scrupulous about it. A lot of cooking goes on in prison.
2: Pretty- <laughs> yeah, I mean, this has been one of the sort of more. I mean, if you, I've always used. Um, as a gauge of whether you've accepted a situation and have really dealt with it is whether or not you can find some humor in it or even smile or laugh about it. One of the things that's been sort of amusing is to see the list of things that the prisoners request from their commissary and then hear Ian's stories about the Bizarre combination. Oh, bizarre combinations of things they put together and cook for themselves because the prison food I'm sure isn't very good. There's a lot of emphasis on hot sauces and lots of other weird things like that. They will even get together for holidays, special occasions and cook up a spread for themselves using the things they do from commissary. And one of the more <laughs> amusing things that we heard from Ian once was he said, you know what, we we figured out that if you take pork rinds, orange juice...
1: You soak them in orange juice until they're soft and then put grape jelly on them.
2: And then fry that up. It tastes almost exactly like steak. Whoa. And we said, well... Well, we'll have to take your word on that. <laughs> you know, it's it's been an interesting process, an interesting journey with him. There, by the same token, I don't want to sugar sugarcoat coat it and make it sound like he's off at summer camp because I'm certainly not in denial about that. You know, there are scary parts of it when he was first in the county jail. Almost every time he called us you could hear people yelling and screaming and in the back, in the background, it was, it sounded almost like there was always an argument or a fight going on. Mm. It, his prison, when we visited him, it was, it was perfectly nice, but it's not, You know, it's a rundown old building with no air conditioning. The day we visited him, it was 104 degrees, and we were sitting outside. Yeah, the the staff were very professional as long as you conducted yourself in a professional manner yourself as a visitor and didn't do anything to arouse their attention. But you know, it can be a scary thing. But by the same token, we have learned that worrying about what might happen doesn't do any good you, you have to part of what Naranon has taught us is you've got to see things for how they really are and not, not exaggerate it in either direction not make it seem like it's a lot better than it actually is, because then you're in denial, but also not exaggerated in the other direction to make it more of a disaster than you think it might be, because that's just going to provoke anxiety, worry, and keep you from thinking clearly. It becomes an obstacle in and of itself, the worry and the anxiety that you can't think or operate effectively to help your loved one or help anyone else or help yourself, You know, we try to stay clear-eyed about all this. But, like I said, prison probably saved his life. And for that, we remain very, very thankful.
1: And he's done a lot of introspection. Um, I actually did a meeting one night on a statement he made to me that I thought was really interesting. He said, I'm not a different person because I don't do drugs. I don't do drugs because I'm a different person. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Now, he is in a facility. It's it's a facility that is... uh, Devoted to basically the care of prisoners that have health conditions that are more common in older prisoners. And the consequence of that is that I was talking to him one time and I just assumed a couple of people he'd referred to as young guys were like, you know, his age. And they weren't. It turned out, I'd asked him pointedly and it turned out his youngest, his youngest compatriot was 38 years old. I think he hears a lot of wisdom from people, you know, who have, maybe not had the kind of start that he had, maybe not had the kind of opportunities that he's had to basically encourage him to to do what he can to see this as, as a bump in the road, but not necessarily the end of the road.
0: How about you? Are you seeing this as a bump in the road?
1: Well, we, we certainly try to, to put it in that context. Um, you know, eight years is a long bump. Um, yeah.
0: is, that, is that his <laughs> sentence?
1: No, 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 but that's how long this has been going on. No, he actually um, he actually um is within a year, uh, almost within a year of his release date. So he fortunately was not charged to the maximum that he could have been partially because it's the first offense. And I think also they realized it was definitely aggravated by drug use. I don't know if that led to any leniency, but certainly the charges that he was up for could have produced a much longer sentence. And again, that was with a public defender. We did not hire a criminal attorney. would never have done that for moral reasons as much as financial reasons. We're really encouraged because now he has been nominated for and and become part of a program that will start in a few months that will encompass the last year that he's he's in um, the prison system out there. And one thing we are thankful for is, I think, generally speaking, that prison system is a lot more enlightened than ours and has a lot better reentry programs for people coming out of prison. So during that final year, he'll have the opportunity to do job training, have a job, live in a facility where it's minimum security and he's got an ankle monitor, I don't know if there will be better visitation opportunities for us because right now visitation is limited to two days a week, the weekends. And when you're trying to piece that together with a plane ticket from the East Coast, it gets complicated. No kidding. But anyway, we're very hopeful that this can be a new chapter of life for him, and he seems as if he's wanting to make it a new chapter. And we're carrying a lot of hope into that situation, and that's another thing that I think people can— Take strength from is that you know prison is not always the end of the road for people. You often hear that it is, but I've heard just as many people tell tell me stories. You know, once they heard our story of friends and family members and people they know of that really did turn their lives around after prison. And he hasn't been in there for such a long time and isn't so old at release that he can't make a new start if he wants to. Also, I think out in the state that he's in now, they no longer have a requirement that you answer whether you've been charged and convicted with felonies or not on applications. The other aspect of that is that I think his first couple of rounds of employment will be with people who know where he's coming from and partner with the prison system to give prisoners jobs on release. So that takes that barrier away somewhat. So yeah, it's been a journey, but we have, we still have a lot of hope that the future will hold something better for him
2: like Michelle said, we we remain hopeful, but one thing we've learned is sometimes when you have hope, you hope for a very specific kind of outcome, a very specific kind of thing, and you you latch onto that, and it becomes a kind of unhelpful expectation. I, I find it very, I find it more useful to keep my sense of hope more vague, that just that he'll be okay. And he'll find whatever, whatever path he's supposed to find. Part of my passage to acceptance here has been to realize my son is not me. He's not a little clone of me. He's not a miniature version of me. He has his own life path to follow. And He's going to have his own aptitudes, his own desires, his own things he wants to get involved in. All that I can hope for is that those are positive and productive ones that don't damage him further, that don't damage society further. So I kind of keep my level of hope vague and open-ended in that way, hoping that his higher power and my higher power are going to look out for all of us. Part of the thing that I had to learn for my own sanity, and again, Naranon helped out a lot with this, is, you know, it's sort of glib to say just for today, but that is a really power-packed statement for me because I have a tendency to ruminate on the past and think about things that I could have done better, could have done differently, could that I did wrong, In the past, and kind of wish I could change the past, and I've learned that that is totally counterproductive, and it make all it does is make me unhappy. It doesn't make me more effective. It doesn't make me a better person. It doesn't mean I love my son more if I worry about him more. It just makes me miserable, and it doesn't do anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. The same thing about projecting into the future. Worrying about what might happen to him, you know, in prison or after he gets out of prison, worrying about whether he's going to relapse or get involved in another crime, worrying about whether he'll be able to find a job or put a future together for himself. We can't do those things. He can't do those things until we actually get there. That's just projecting into the future, and I can't worry about that either. I have to focus on what's going on right here, right now. I know my son's alive. He's in jail. He's working towards the future. He's gotten into this program that Michelle described that's going to hopefully help him with placement after prison. That's pretty good. And if you'd told me this scenario seven or eight years ago, I would not have said, that's pretty good. I would say, gosh, that's a freaking disaster. How am I going to live through that? How is my family going to live through that? And I don't think that way anymore. I know we can get through a lot of things because we already have. And we've seen our friends in who've dealt with similar issues. We've seen them get through things like this and things that were a lot worse my message and one of the reasons we're sharing our story is we want people who may be facing something like this either now or in the future to know they're not alone. There's nothing special about us. We're not superhuman. We don't have special abilities to deal with all this that other people lack. We're just like everybody else. If we can manage this, and get through this without losing our minds, without damaging our marriage, without endangering our relationship with our other child or our friends and family, if we can do that, you can do that too. You know, sometimes if you look at it in advance and say, I had to deal with dealing with this issue, you would say, that's impossible. It's possible. You can do it. If we, if we can do it, anybody can do it. It just, requires reach having the strength and courage to reach out and ask for help finding support whether it's through Narnon Al-Anon whatever support group you choose and feel that fits you the best that's what's going to help you the most and just do that have the courage to do that you are not alone I mean I think one of the cruel ironies of of the opioid crisis, which obviously ensnared my son, is that people can turn on the radio these days or look at a newspaper or a magazine or a website, and you can hear story after story after story about the opioid epidemic, about how normal, wonderful people from wonderful families are being ensnared by all this and is destroying lives. But those same people, after they turn off the radio or close the magazine, go, I'm all alone. No one understands. No one's going through what I'm going through. That's simply not true. People I talk to, I strike up conversations with strangers.
1: And this is coming from a die-in-the-wool introvert, so striking up conversations with strangers is not a, naive, it's not a usual thing.
2: I, I discovered that you can strike up a conversation with strangers and after a while, sometimes they will start speaking in code to you. And you can read that code. And I've had literally had conversations like, So do you have any kids? Oh yeah, I've got a I've got a son. He's but he's out in California kind of doing his own thing. Yeah, I've I've got a daughter like that. She's kind of had some issues and then i go a little bit further and say well my my son's had some serious problems with drugs and alcohol and the other person goes yeah that's been my daughter's story too and before you know it this total stranger this sales clerk behind the counter or someone i've just met you know you discover they 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 are itching to share their story and cuz no one's ever asked them mm. And or 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 they think they would be rejected, and or that people would think they are a horrible person because this happened to their family. I've learned, you know, if I didn't cause it, if I can't control it, and I can't cure it, why should I be ashamed of it? If I, I didn't cause my son to become an addict, and I can't magically wave a wand to cure him of that, so why should I? be afraid for other people to find out this is going on with me, particularly if they find out that it's going on with me, it may help them. They may be, you know, deathly afraid that someone's going to find out their secret. Part of sharing my story has been learning that it may not be drugs and alcohol. It may not be a criminal record, But almost everyone's got something going on in their life that they are either ashamed of or afraid of other people finding out about, or they think they will be rejected for it. It may be an aging parent. It may be some kind of horrible illness that some family member has. It may be that their family has been touched by mental illness, or their family's been touched by suicide, or, you know, goodness knows, but... My experience is almost everyone has got something like that going on, and most people, unfortunately, seem to suffer in silence. If you go out there sometimes, and I I know this isn't for everyone, uh, but if you go out there and just take a risk by telling a little bit of your story, you will be surprised about how many people are out there. That are desperate for understanding, and they don't know where to turn. They don't either have access to a proper support group, or they don't know how to go about finding it. And, you know, we know people that are deathly afraid of their own family. They're you know, cousins, brothers, and sisters finding out about their addicted loved one because they think they'll be judged by their own family or their own family won't understand. There are people that are desperate out there to hear that they are not alone and that they can make it through whatever they've got to face, even some really trying, difficult, terrifying situations. You can make it through. We've made it through so far and like i said before if we can do it anybody can you just got to you got to figure out what you need and reach out and ask for the help that you need mm-hmm. and there's no shame, there's no shame in asking for help yeah. the shame would be in needing help and being too afraid or fearful to ask for it and having things continue to spiral downwards simply because you were too timid or afraid to say, you know what, I, I've got, I need help. There's no shame in that.
0: That's a, that's a really powerful statement to somebody who is struggling and doesn't, doesn't have that help. Michelle, what would, what might you add or what might you say to somebody who, you know, is just starting into this journey, either starting into this journey of, of a loved one in addiction or starting into this journey of a loved one in prison?
1: I would say that it's really important to find a support group. That's been all the difference to us. I don't think that there's anyone who can't be helped by a group of people who are going through the same things that they are yet. You know, our situation, certainly there are groups that focus on having a loved one in prison. There are groups that focus on having a loved one with mental health conditions. This particular area we live in has a lot of services for and support for families with autistic family members. And I always said before we ever had children, I always kind of thought to myself, if I ever had a child that had some sort of medical issue or something, I would, I would find a support group as quickly as I could because it looked to me like that was a really great way to survive just about any crisis is to band together with people who, people who know your story. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think too, I have had a number of people asked me about the differences between the programs, one thing I will say about our particular challenges with our with our addicts, and I'll say this to people who are fairly fairly new to this world, what my child has been involved in, it, it necessitated criminal activity for he, him to even obtain the, the materials that he used. Then those materials were so expensive that it necessitated possible criminal activity to get the funds to get those those materials. It would also, you know, create an environment where maybe you would start trying to sell or buy or trade those materials to have access to them yourself, and that's a criminal activity. I think that's fundamentally different from having a problem with something that is a, a readily available controlled substance at a reasonable price sold in commercial locations that someone, you know can can get when they want it. i think I think the addiction itself is one layer of it, but the criminal aspect of it, and basically the social aspects of it are very different when you have someone who is involved with addiction. So I guess I would urge someone who had a loved one who had this particular problem, to explore all the different fellowships, but to be aware that our program, which is a younger program and tends to be a smaller program because of that, does have that unique perspective to offer. If you do have someone who's struggling with not just addiction, but with all of the criminal kind of halo around the behaviors that surround addiction, I think sometimes Nara and I can be a lot more specific on that particular topic for people in terms of support.
0: Yeah, Thanks. thanks to both of you. After a short break, we will continue with our Lives in Recovery where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings, and Mark, I understand you have a musical selection for us here.
2: I've got a couple of songs that remind me of Ian, in a way, and his struggle. (laughs) I have to say, it can be hard to find songs that are topical without being really depressing. (laughs) You know, particularly, I I mean, you know, to be frank, in popular culture, there's a lot of songs that are Reference drug use and alcohol use. And most of them are not very hopeful, but I've got a couple. One, Ian was, and I think he probably remains a big fan of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and he always was through high school. And I think he identified with them to a certain extent because members of that band had their own struggles with drugs and alcohol, including the lead singer who writes most of the lyrics. He wrote a song that I think most people have heard this on the radio a thousand times, but Mm -hmm. they wrote a song called Soul to Squeeze that to me seems to be about someone who recognizes that they are struggling with substance abuse issues, mental health issues. But in the end, in spite of all that, they still remain hopeful that things are going to get better for them. Some of the things that from the, um, the song that really grabbed me, is the song starts out with the phrases, I've got a bad disease, but from my brain is where I bleed. In steady, it seems, has got me by my soul to squeeze. He continues with, oh, so polite indeed, I've got everything I need. Oh, make my days a breeze and take away my self-destruction.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And to me, that really, really uh, describes some of the things I think my son has gone through. There's other song references in the song to being on a roller coaster. And of course, we know this journey is a roller coaster mm-hmm. for everyone involved. You know, it ends with the chorus repeated in two different variations that give me the sense of hope that I think... I even hear a sense of hope in how Ian now talks about the future, and I think that's mirrored in this older song. The chorus is, where I go, I just don't know. I've got to, got to take it slow. When I find my peace of mind, I'm going to give you some of my good time. And then he varies it with, where I go, I just don't know. I might end up somewhere in Mexico, but when I find my peace of mind, I'm going to keep you for the end of time. And I hope my son has that sense of hope about his future in spite of all the bad things that have happened to him that have gone on. I think holding on to hope and trying to let go of despair is a very, very important step in all of this. It's very easy to be gripped by fear throughout all of this. And fear is perhaps your own worst enemy in all of this struggle.
3: Mm -hmm. Thank you.
0: In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in our meetings, in our lives this week. How does recovery work in our life? Michelle, you want to start?
1: Okay. Well, this week, um, I do I've gone from zero to 60 in having sponsors. I didn't have any sponsors in the past, and that's something we've been working on in our group because that hasn't been a tradition in our group, and we all agree it's important, but it was sort of like, no, you go first, no, you go first. And since I actually had gone outside our fellowship and found a sponsor who I was blessed with a double winner who got me through the 12 steps in a pretty efficient manner because as she said, I'm not, I'm not just saving hearts, I'm saving lives. Um, When I work in the AA program, I've been through the steps. So I kind of volunteered to be one of the first sponsors and I now have two sponsees. So I met with each of them this week. And that was, that was a new experience. And I, I did enjoy the extra one-on-one time. I know that I'm going to have to be finding a way to place some boundaries on the amount of time I spend and on where meetings take place and kind of what the format is and clarifying what objectives are So that's something that I worked on this week. And then also at our particular meeting that we had this week, we had an interesting topic that made me think about the way that I approach things differently because of the program. The subject was A New Way of Thinking, and it's April 18th, page 109 of our sesh book. If I saw an insane person on the street, I would not try to talk sense to that person. Why do I think I can talk sense to an addict? Why do I think I can cure addiction by talking? I learned in Naranon, I could not. I used to think that if I were the perfect parent, spouse, friend, child, or sibling to the addict, the addict would get clean. If I were good to the addict, the addict would get clean. The truth is, I never heard an addict say, I got clean because my parent, spouse, or child was so good to me. I keep trying to do one more thing. I was certain that this one more thing would be the one that would work. The addict would hit bottom, see the light, go to a meeting, and find recovery. It took me so long to learn and accept that there was no one more thing for me to do. It was not my responsibility. There was no one more thing to stop the addict from using. Naranon showed me how to change my focus by thinking about the addict in another way. The reality was that he was using. By believing otherwise, I was kidding myself. I was obsessed with the addict's behavior and... My thinking was distorted. I have learned from Naranon that addictions a family disease thought for today. In the safety of my Naranon meetings, I can work the steps, talk to a sponsor, and do service. In these ways, I practice changing my thinking. Slowly, a new way of thinking and a new way of life emerges. There are two entirely opposite attitudes possible in facing the problems of one's life. One is to try and change the external world, the other to try and change oneself. And that quote is from Joanna Field. Hmm. I thought that was a really interesting reading. And one thing that I shared with my group is, of course, everyone's familiar with our story. And since our son is in prison and we have been having positive interactions with him in that sense, some of that day to day anxiety has been taken away that you feel when you have an attitude out actively using. But I still find that I, a lot of my isms, shall we say, take over in other parts of my life and I've been working on trying to effectively change those. That's been part of my process for years now. I find that I use the principles in a lot of different areas and just recently we've been getting calls from our son. He's in his freshman year of college and he's gone up to a college near New York City, and he found it to be a real cultural shift, and the schools ended up being kind of a commuter school, and it's very cold there, and it gets dark really early in the evening, and all those things combined together with the fact that he had already gotten access to a major at a different state college here that he would have to gain entry to there, he's kind of started to look at all that in the same way we were looking at it before he left. Is thinking it might be time to make a change so my first impulse of course was well if you want to transfer, these are the deadlines and I'm going to get in touch with somebody in the department over there for transfers and have him give you a call and you can, you can link up with him or her and talk about the next steps and we'll get everything done by the deadlines and that way you'll be able to, to enter there straight away in the fall and I took my NARN on pause yeah. and thought well you know I wonder if reacting this way would really empower my son, would really make him have faith in his ability to take care of his own business, would make him really come away from whatever he comes up with, with a sense of ownership that that the next steps were his and not mine. And so what I did is I found one webpage that just gave the deadlines for fall and screenshotted it and sent it to him and said... Let us know what you need. I know you have some downtime coming up because of the holiday weekend. And, of course, it's too short a holiday for him to come home, which is another aspect of all of this. <laughs> He's starting to realize. You know, just let us know if we need to come up with any application fees or anything like that. You may want to think about what kind of courses you might want to pursue and get there. I'm sure all that information's online. And I kind of just gave him some ideas about directions to go in but didn't do any of it for him. Maybe he'll follow up on it, and maybe he'll be going there in the fall, and all the I will be dotted, the T's will be crossed. But if that doesn't happen, and maybe he'll spend a little time going to community college and just working or something like that, maybe take a gap year. But the old me would never have been able to accept that kind of uncertainty or keep my hands off that situation. Looking at the way I handled that situation with my healthy child, shows me how much the program has made a difference in the way that I handle problems that that arise in anyone's life.
2: Yeah. If you want your young adult children, you know, when they're 18, 20, 24 years old, if you want them to learn how to make decisions, you have to let them make decisions. You can't do it for them.
0: What a radical concept.
2: Yeah. And then you have to like, let them live with the consequences of their own decisions. If you, if you make the decision for them or force them to do something, when things go wrong, they just go, well, I didn't want to do this anyway. This is mommy and daddy's fault. But by the same token, when things go right, they don't feel any sense of accomplishment from it because they didn't really own it and take, make the decision themselves. Someone else pushed them into it or did it for them. So you have to give them, and this applies to, our healthy child, our addicted child who's in prison, you have to let them learn how to do it on their own. And and that's that's your job as a parent, is to get them to figure out how to do it on their own, not do it for them, not try to guarantee a result or an outcome. They're going to have to... And it's painful
0: to watch. <laughs>
2: it's painful. Oh, yeah. But your job as a parent is to work your way out of a job, not, not stay on the job for your child's entire life, because then they then they remain a child. And definitely, as Michelle pointed out, the, the lessons we've learned in Naranon are life lessons that have had impacts and helped us with lots of other things going on in our lives that have nothing to do with our addicted loved one. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's another another way that it's been very beneficial to us.
0: That is one of the reasons that I, I keep this section of the podcast, because we do find, I do find this program working in all aspects of my life, not just in the, you know, my wife got sober, um, got to do the math now, you know, like almost 14 years ago. But I'm still here. Why am I still here? Well, because... <laughs> I've learned new ways of being that that helped me in all aspects of my life. You know, when you said earlier that my child is not, essentially is not my clone. He's not not the same as me. He doesn't think the same way. He doesn't act the same way. He doesn't have the same desires and goals. That just resonated so strongly with me because both of my children, whom I love dearly, have made life choices that I don't understand. And they're not necessarily bad choices. I think they're not bad choices. They're just choices I don't understand. Because, hey, they're not me. So I want to thank you for reminding me of that fact. So I'm looking forward. I always try to look forward to the next episode or so. And I got a text from Eric, who's a a frequent uh, co-host on this show. And he suggested a show about, what did he call it? Slogans, Slogans, quotes, and something. I don't have it exactly. But you know, we just did one on acronyms and alliterations and now he wants to do one on slogans and quotes and so hey, what is, you know, what is your favorite slogan? What is your favorite quote? We welcome your thoughts, your contributions. You can join our conversation. Please leave us a voicemail or send us an email with your feedback, your favorite quote, your favorite slogan. Michelle, how can people send us feedback? You can call
1: and leave us a voicemail at 734 734- 707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at the show. We'd love to hear from you, share your experience, strength, and hope, or questions about today's topic of loved ones in prison, or any of our upcoming topics, including slogans, end quote. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, please let us
0: know. Mark, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show?
2: Our website, the Show, has all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, links to the music that we talk about, and some links to other recovery podcasts and websites that we like.
0: Thanks. You have another song, I think, also.
2: There is a song that to me is about acceptance it's not specifically referencing issues with addiction or drugs or alcohol it's a song called in the meantime by space hog who was a one-hit wonder i think back in the 1990s some of the lyrics go like this and i won't read the whole thing of course And in the end, we shall achieve in time the thing they call divine, and all the stars will shine for me when all is well, and well is all for all, forever after, living in the meantime, wait and see. And when I cry for me, I cry for you, with tears of holy joy, for all the days still to come, and did I ever say I'd never play or fly towards the sun? Living in the meantime, something's gone. We love the all the all of you. Where lands are green and skies are blue. And all in all, we're just like you. We love the all of you. Well that sounds fine, so I'll see you sometime.
0: Okay. I'm reaching the end of the the time that I have available today, so I think I'm gonna record feedback section myself later. Okay. Tomorrow or the next day. Thank you so much.
1: So much. I mean, you're in my
0: ear all the time, so it's funny to hear you in real time. Hi, Spencer here. We uh, ran out of time recording with Michelle and Mark to be able to get into the listener feedback section of the podcast. so I'm here by myself to record your feedback, your letters, your voicemails. Ashley writes from Canada. Hello, Spencer and co-hosts. I wanted to share with you just how much your show has helped me. I found the show in February. At that point, I downloaded a bunch of shows on topics I am struggling with or wanted to focus on. I think I've listened to around 25 podcasts now. Each of them have left me a stronger and better person. The recovery show is my meeting between meetings. I've been in the program for three and a half years and in the last eight months finally buckled down and really began to work my program made an effort to attend other meetings when I can't make it to our home meeting. In between my weekly meet, I have this show. I'm currently in the middle of working with my sponsor on my fourth step. In doing the fourth step, I feel like the floodgates have opened. I have light bulbs go off with every podcast I listen to on my way to work, at least three of them a week. Last week, I was listening to one of your podcasts on gratitude while driving home. Something you said caused me to need to pull over for a moment. I was so overwhelmed with gratitude for everything in my life that I needed to take a moment to ride this emotional wave. Then today I was listening to recovery with young children. Spencer, you said something in it in regards to your daughter. It was about a conversation with her when she was older about when your anger came out and you shouted at her as a child. She said something along the lines of, When you yelled, I would go in the other room and curl up. I knew you would calm down and then I would have my daddy back again. This statement, oh, it hits me to my core. I had to pull over the car again until I calmed down. This is me. My anger gets the better of me, and I turn into someone else at times. I yell more than I should. My kids get most of my anger taken out on them. They are young, and they don't deserve that from me. Thank you for sharing that. It made me feel not alone. It's giving me hope I, too, will be able to let go of my guilt I have with this character defect to mature and leave this character defect behind. This is something I'm trying to change, and I'm doing so with the help of this podcast. I cannot express my gratitude for this podcast enough. Please continue your good work. Sincerely, Ashley from Alberta, Canada. Ashley, I'm grateful that my words could touch you in that way. My hopes that as you continue to work this program, your rage will be removed from you as mine was. We have a voicemail from Jennifer. Hi, my name is Jennifer.
4: I am a grateful member of Algon. I've been in the program on and off for about three or four years. My dad is one of my qualifiers, and so is my sister. I really like listening to the show, especially in the morning, because I have such a long ride into work. And I really like the way that it correlates <laughs> with a lot of stuff that I learned um, in the Al-Anon program. For me... I think letting go of expectations has been a really big thing. It's really helped me in my life. Just being able, uh, when I was listening to the Mary P. Girl, being able to accept, accept people as they are and not wanting to change them. Some of these small things that seem so minute are just life-changing. So I just want to thank you for the podcast. Um, thanks for being there every day and thanks for spreading the uh, message of recovery. I hope you're having a good day because I know I am. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Jennifer, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. Lydia wrote about the acronyms and alliterations, episode number 284. Hi Spencer, I really enjoyed the show on acronyms and alliterations, and I want to add my longtime favorite as printed on a bookmark that I received as a love gift at an al event when I was new to the program. It was mentioned, but I learned it just a little differently. H-O-W, as in, how do I work my program honestly, openly, and willingly? I now have a brand new favorite. A member said that when she was in despair after coming home from visiting her dying sister, She went to an Al-Anon meeting in a church, and while sitting there, she looked up at big letters on the wall, spelling the word faith, F-A-I-T-H. She said that what came to her was comforting. First accept it, then hope. Thank you for your great service in producing this podcast. I hear a lot of wisdom that I add to my program toolbox and share with others. Lydia in Portland, Oregon. And thank you for that one, Lydia. I'm pretty sure we didn't have that one. The thing that I like about these acronyms, and these alliterations, is that they're shortcuts that help us to remember important concepts. First accept, then hope. Yeah. Ashley also called us about the Acronyms and Alliterations show.
5: Hi, Spencer. This is Ashley calling from New Mexico. Thank you so much for your show. I am in the middle of the Alliterations and Acronyms podcast right now, so I'm not a thousand percent sure that that this acronym isn't on your show but I have a feeling it's not it's pretty unique special a friend of mine who was in Al Anon many many years ago says that spirit told her this one and it's an acronym for control and it's constantly orchestrating nothing through restriction of love i just love that one so much anyway thanks for the episode it's great thanks for your episodes every time really appreciate it it's so nice to have little hits of meetings in between meetings have a good one
0: i love that constantly orchestrating nothing through restriction of love control yeah that one is that is great thanks ashley Nancy says, Hi, Spencer. I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of months and started going to al meetings about two weeks ago. Two meetings, actually. I'm reading literature. and your co-hosts have recommended. Your podcasts are changing my life. I really appreciate that you put your literature recommendation on your website, as I'm often listening while driving and can't take notes safely anyway. I moved to email because of this last podcast speaker, Mary Pearl T on steps eight and nine. I've listened to earlier podcasts you posted of hers, moving and entertaining at the same time. I've heard her stories about her mother. This last one made me sob as I'm joining Alan at a time when I've been confronted by being an adult child of a mother who was an alcoholic, who I ran from at 19 and never looked back. Now she rears her ugly head in my life again, needing care and having alienated everyone forever. I struggle with what responsibility I should take. I'm working with outside help on this, but God put this podcast in front of me to hear at the right time for me to hear it. Thank you, God, and Spencer, Nancy B. And I have to say, Nancy, that I was in tears at the end of that episode, also. You know, those are the gifts that this program gives us sometimes. Thanks for writing. Jeanette shares some of her story and her gratitude. I recently started listening to your podcast thanks to a referral from a friend of mine in Al-Anon. I've been a grateful Al-Anon member since the mid-80s. The tools I've acquired and used all of these years have been priceless and saved me from what would have been immeasurable pain and suffering, and there's been plenty of that. I have two adult alcoholic children in their late 40s, both still practicing and very addicted. Their father passed away three years ago of this disease. We were divorced when my children were very young. There is no alcoholism in my family, so I was clueless until after my divorce when I became involved with another alcoholic out of that relationship too. Fast forward, Al-Anon came into my life, and when I recognized my daughter was alcoholic, I began to mainline Al-Anon meetings and quickly gathered every tool I could wrap my mind around. As time passed, it was evident my son was alcoholic too. It became apparent that alcoholism is a disease that can be inherited, and 100% of my children suffer from this affliction. I have been estranged from my daughter for over three years. After many years of severe verbal abuse from her, I had to detach. We rarely speak, and she continues to drink. I have a 23-year-old granddaughter who is not alcoholic, but it is very evident that she is the child of an alcoholic mother. Her biological father is not in the picture. My granddaughter and I are close. Currently, my son is homeless in Colorado. I live on the East Coast, and I haven't seen him for almost three years. He's in touch frequently, and I feel like I live on the edge of a cliff. He went into detox six months ago and stayed clean for a couple months. There's always an excuse as to why he can't get into rehab, although he does admit he's an alcoholic. Of course, he has no insurance, but is on Medicaid. Over this period of time, I have caved in and enabled him by giving him small amounts of money, 10 to $20, and lodging so he's out of the ice and snow and can take a shower and sleep in a bed. Otherwise, he lives in his pickup truck, which his father left to him. He has no driver's license, insurance, or legal plates. He's very good at construction and occasionally has jobs, and no doubt drinks his income. I know that any day I could get a phone call that he has died, something that haunts me more than anything. I would like to hear from other members who share similar issues, so that I may continue to add to my toolbox. I'm good at setting boundaries, have a grip on the disease, and sleep fairly well at night. That being said, I'm a parent, and of course, do not want to lose a child to this mind-boggling disease. I'm very clear on the three C's. I didn't cause this disease can't control it and cannot cure it. I'm a parent and love my child. In spite of years of living with having alcoholic children, I've made a great life for myself and have an absolutely wonderful man in my life. We've been together six years and are getting married in a few weeks. We're both well educated, financially secure, have a beautiful home and great friends. My husband-to-be is very supportive, however, has not been involved with Al-Anon, so I don't burden him with a lot of the behavior of my children, mostly because I know he would want to help, and I have my program and Al-Anon friends who I'm quite comfortable talking to. However, no one I know personally has a situation quite like mine. I also know that we all share a similar bond, though, and our situations don't have to be the same to have these mutual bonds." So far, I've listened to several podcasts about enabling, detaching, compassion, boundaries, and several other topics. All are wonderful, and I'm so thankful I have found this resource in addition to the meetings I attend. If you have any podcast topic suggestions that would be especially insightful, please pass those along. And if possible, when you're doing future podcasts, include one on parents of active adult alcoholics. Thanks very much. Jeanette M. And she adds a P.S. I tried to make this short. I'm sure we all have long stories, right? What's brief about this disease? With a big smile. Yeah, no kidding. So episode 22 is Parents Roundtable, and one of the members who participated in that episode has an adult child who has been in and out of sobriety. I think at the time of recording, he might have actually had some sobriety. and You might find something there. I don't know if we have... Other episodes that focus on that particular situation, though. so good topic to add to my list. Beth Ann wonders about navigating sobriety. Spencer, thanks for your show. I listen often, and I'm grateful for the feeling of relatability that can be hard to find outside of our meeting rooms. I'm hoping you might consider doing a show on navigating life with a newly sober partner. My husband and I met young, married young, and began fighting about his drinking early in our almost 30-year marriage. Have three children together, who bear the scars of being raised by their dad and I. He went through treatment and has been sober for almost four months. After many years of trying an occasional meeting and backing off, I finally began attending Al-Anon in earnest a few months before my husband entered treatment, and it helped me and by extension our kids so much through one of our darkest times as a family. One daughter even said she had seen big changes for the better in me since I'd begun attending Al-Anon. This was the best encouragement I could have asked for. I knew that sobriety would not smooth out all the wrinkles, but I admit I've been struggling more than I ever anticipated. My husband's personality and sobriety is so different from before that it's almost like being with another man altogether. During his active alcoholism, we cycled through chaos and fighting that would settle into better times, only to blow up again when his drinking inevitably worsened. He would occasionally proclaim a few months off, once even taking 12 months off, saying it was proof that he was in control. "'Invariably, he'd come back full force "'and seemed to make up for lost time, even. "'Through the years, I learned more or less "'to navigate and balance against the craziness, "'admittedly with my own kinds of crazy. "'Now, in our fifties, we still love each other. "'I admire him deeply, and we both want to stay together. "'But the distant, tentative, cautious man in my house "'feels like a stranger some days. "'Everything about our relationship is affected.' Some things, certainly for the best, but our communication and physical intimacy have undergone such change that I'm feeling lost, rejected, and bewildered. Luckily, I have a sponsor through Al-Anon, and I'm able to vent to her so I don't hand him my anger and resentments like I did in the old days. He and I are both working the steps with our own sponsors and each attend several meetings weekly, so I have faith that our programs will work. In the meantime, I could use the experienced strength, and hope from others who've been down this road into the sobriety we all pray for into the serenity I work to cultivate every day. Gratefully, Beth Ann. Thanks for writing, Beth Ann. My own experience and that of friends is that it takes a while to navigate into sobriety, particularly when your partner is is early in sobriety and is really just working on, on keeping it. I encourage you to, you know, do what you're doing. Go to meetings, talk to your sponsor, and give your husband some space to find his own path. And yeah, he's he's not going to be the same. I, my wife is, is not the same as she was. And I will say the first, for me, the first several years of sobriety were difficult. I wanted her to make progress a lot faster than she was making it. I wanted things to be just okay. Again, you know, I wanted things to be good again. And it, it takes a while to figure out how to live as a couple in sobriety. So hang in there. Keep working your program. Let him work his program. Definitely keep talking to your sponsor. Got some topic suggestions. Here's one from Emma. Hi, I went to an Elena meeting yesterday and the pick and mix subject came up as values. It was an interesting subject and the general consensus was that this subject doesn't come up very often. I searched on your podcast and you don't have a podcast on it either. I was wondering if you could do one. Thanks, Emma. Yeah, another good topic, values. Episode 101, looking back, looking ahead. It's a new year. It's the first episode in 2015. A little bit of the notes here. This is the time of year when we look back at the year gone by and forward at the year to come. I talked about my process of looking back and looking ahead. And the first question that I ask myself is, how are my actions in alignment with my values? Which immediately leads to the question, well, what are my values? So I talked a little bit about what mine are and how I see them acting in my life and whether I saw that my actions were in alignment with those values or not. So that might be a helpful one for you, but uh, a general subject of values. Actually, Emma, if you could maybe share a little bit more about what the discussion in that meeting focused on, what things came up, that, that could be helpful for me in formulating that episode. Thanks. Kim has a topic Hello, Spencer. I've been listening to your podcast on a more regular basis to tie me over between my Al-Anon meetings. I'm a double winner and I'm an active member of another 12-step group for over four years now. So Al-Anon and the concept of personal recovery is not new to me in this sense. I recently joined Al-Anon about a month ago. I have a home group and have attended at least six meetings in the last month. I also read the daily reflections. The topic at my home group last night was Tradition 12 and Principles Before Personalities. I left the meeting last night feeling a bit defeated, as it were. I've heard principles before personalities and chant it as it's read out loud in meetings. I just don't know how I practice them, if all. Wondering if there's a podcast you can point me to that might help me. Thank you for all you do. Regards, Kim in Vancouver, Canada. And I know we definitely did episode on 12, so that would be a place to start. And there probably are some others. It might be good to come back and talk about it just that specific part. Thanks, Kim. And a different Michelle writes with another suggestion, Spencer, thank you so much for the show. I'm a full-time working mom. So getting to a meeting more than once a week is a challenge. I'm in the beginning stages of recovery, but the biggest issue I'm faced with is whether to stay or go. My spouse has been white knuckling his sobriety for the last six months. He copes with the use of a breathalyzer and once a week counseling appointment. He does not go to AA, and the only friend he has is an addict who is in the beginning stages of recovery as well. He continues to put a majority of the blame on me versus looking at what he may have done, drinking and manipulation to contribute to a horrible marriage. I legally separated from him in order to protect my assets, should he get into a car accident while drunk. We still live together and we have a small child. I am not sure what to do. I'm in Al-Anon trying to find serenity. I don't even know if I love him anymore after everything he's put our family through while drinking. I've listened to the old podcast you had from a couple of years ago, but I was wondering if you would consider doing another podcast on staying or going. I found it was really helpful to hear the various stories from people regardless if it was staying or going. Just sometimes to hear we aren't alone in what I'm dealing with. Thanks so much, Michelle. That is always a difficult question, Michelle. You know, we say we don't give advice, but sometimes we we make strong suggestions and one of the suggestions that I've often heard in these rooms is to not make any major changes in the first year of your recovery. Because I know for me, it actually took me a couple years to get to clarity as to whether to, to stay or, or to try to leave my marriage. So hang in there, keep going to meetings, read the literature, get a sponsor if you don't have one, because that can really help and, and start working the steps because the steps for me helped me to know myself, helped me to know that I could be okay because I had the support of a higher power. And I think that helped me to get to that decision point. Thanks for writing. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses. You can help to support us and keep us on the web, and in your ear in a couple of ways. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Tamson, Penelope, Matthew, Ronald, and Charlotte did. And thank you again for your support. We have put together a list of recovery-related books, and I'm adding one. I'm adding the, the Naranon Sesh book that Michelle and Mark talked about. Click on the books link in the menu at the top of the page. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. In fact, anything you order from Amazon after clicking on one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, simply direct them to the recovery.show or just listening to us. We're here for you. I picked a closing song here. This one's by Leanne Rimes titled, How Do I Live Without You? And to me, it speaks to the, the sadness of having somebody you love far away where where you can't reach them, you can't touch them. Some lyrics here. How do I live without you? I want to know. How do I breathe without you if you ever go? How do I ever, ever survive? Oh, how do I live without you? Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.